0: Well, welcome to Sojourn Church. As Alan said, if this is your first time here, we're grateful to have you gather with us this morning. Uh, My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and I just love this time every week that we can sing together as we just did, as we can uh, open up God's Word this morning as we're about to do, and then we can respond in song again uh, at the end. Uh, If you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand and uh, some folks will bring a Bible around to you. We'd love for you to be able to look at God's word this morning uh, to be able to read along with us. So just keep your hand up until they find you if you do need a copy of the scriptures this morning. You know, I really like food. Do you guys like food? I really like it. I don't like fixing it. I don't really know how to fix very much uh, food, but I do like eating it. I don't have expensive tastes, but like to eat good tasting food. I mean, it's crazy if you think about the fact that we can taste food. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that God has created us to have to eat food? It's required for us to be able to survive, but he didn't have to make it taste good. And he he didn't have to create us with taste buds, but he did. Which means that we should and can enjoy good food to the glory of God. It's meant to be enjoyed. Even the Apostle Paul says that we should do everything for God's glory, including eating and drinking. It's a gift of grace that I can enjoy to the glory of God, a Mike's grill burger. It's to the glory of God that I can enjoy eating a perfectly cooked steak or a nice glass of wine or some vanilla ice cream on top of my wife's homemade peach cobbler. Food is a gift from the Lord, but food, like anything, can become addictive. It can become idolatrous for us as well. A good thing that can become an ultimate thing, that when we don't get it or we can't have it, we can't maintain it, our true heart and the true focus of our worship is revealed. Today, as we continue on in Exodus, we're going to look at what it looks like when God's people get a pretty hefty helping of food. They get bread, they get meat, they get water. But they don't just get those things, they also get a pretty hefty helping Of God's grace. There's a lot that we can learn about from about the heart of man in this section of scripture that we're going to look at today not only for the people of Israel but also our own hearts and we also learn much about the heart of our God. So I hope that we that God will do a work in us this morning as we open up his word to see what it has to say to us. So let's pray before we do that. Father we're grateful to be able to gather together as your people today as we get to do every week Lord, I pray that that wouldn't be lost on us week after week, just the gift of grace that it is to be able to gather together as your people. And so, Lord, now as we open up your word together, as we sit under the preaching of your word together, I pray that your spirit would do a work in all of our hearts this morning. I pray that you'd bring conviction where there needs to be conviction this morning. I pray that you'd bring transformation where there needs to be transformation this morning. I pray that you'd bring people to yourself. Lord, we believe your word is faithful to do that. And so we ask by your spirit that you'd do that and that you'd get all the glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, go ahead and grab your Bible and you can open up to Exodus chapter 15. That's where we're going to begin today. We're going to look at a few chapters in Exodus as we continue on in our series in the first five books of the Bible. We're going to jump in at Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Just to begin, just going to read a few verses for us. This is what it says. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? See, the people of Israel have just experienced God's saving grace. We've seen that Yahweh, the Lord, has saved and redeemed Israel. Israel, as they've passed through the Red Sea on dry ground, death was before them, death was behind them, but God made a way of salvation for them. And they rejoiced together. They sang a song to Yahweh and about him, a thunderous chorus of two million, 2 million people singing in response to grace. I mean, they've experienced an insurmountable obstacle and overcome it by God's hand alone. But it's only the beginning of their journey. We see in verse 22 that Moses leads them out of this area of the Red Sea. They go to a new place and it says they go into the wilderness. They go three days in the wilderness and they find no water. They've been brought out of slavery through the sea, but now they're in a barren wasteland. Two million people journeying together and nowhere in sight is a land flowing with milk and honey. And to make matters worse, they can't find water to drink. See, another crisis is forming for God's people. And what we're going to see over chapters 15, 16, and the beginning of chapter 17 are three scenes. And these three scenes have a common theme to all of them. And So I want to tell the story that we see in these few chapters of Exodus and then go back and look at what's going on with God's people. So here is this first scene. Now, there's something ironic about the fact, isn't it, that that the people of Israel have just walked through the Red Sea, that God parted a massive amount of water. They've walked through it on dry land, and now they're complaining about having no water. I mean, can the God who parts the sea not also provide the very thing he showed absolute control over? It seems as if they've already forgotten They've already forgotten who freed them from slavery. They've already forgotten who rescued them from oppression and redeemed them. And they come to this place. They finally think they find water and they realize it's bitter water. They can't actually drink it. God actually leads them there. We know that he's leading them by a pillar of cloud and fire. And so he leads them to this specific place. But when they realize they can't drink the water, they have no water. They don't go to God with requests to ask for water. They complain and grumble and grumble but God is gracious to their grumbling. Moses cries out to God and God makes the water drinkable. But then God says something key that's this kind of overarching reality of their relationship with him that he sets in place as they trek through the wilderness. Look at verse 26. It says, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, the voice of Yahweh, your God, and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments. And keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am Yahweh, your healer. Listen to me, God says. Do what is right in my eyes. Seek after righteousness. Listen to my my commands. Keep my statutes. See, God is graciously saying to them, look, you've been set free from an oppressor. You were under a heavy-handed master. But you've been set free to follow me now as Lord. And Master, and when you follow me, life will go better for you. so we get to the end of the first scene, and now we jump into the second scene, the beginning of chapter sixteen verses one through three say they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the fifteenth day of the second month month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of israel Grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The people continue on their journey in the wilderness, and the complaining and the grumbling start up again. This time, though, it's over food. There's a few things that we should note here. I mean, first off, it's interesting to think about the fact that we know that they've left Egypt with tons of livestock, tons of animals. So, if they really needed something to eat, they could have used these animals as food if necessary. But what we realize is that isn't what they want, and it's not how they want it. So, they grumble. Notice also what happens when what they want is not obtainable in the manner in which they want it. They long for the days of slavery. They say, we'd rather God have killed us in Egypt and we had all that we could eat, all the food we could have. That would have been better for us. They reflect on their time in Egypt as being a good thing, yet they seem to conveniently forget the fact that they were enslaved and oppressed. And lastly, notice the accusation they make. They accuse Moses and Aaron of leading them to this place, but it's God that's led led them there. So how does God respond? He responds once again with grace. Verses four and five say, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. God is going to miraculously supply food for them. Continuing on in verses six. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel at evening, you shall know that it was Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of Yahweh because he has heard your grumbling against him. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when Yahweh gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because Yahweh has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us but against Yahweh. Moses wants to make sure the people understand a few things. He wants to make sure they understand, look, if it hasn't sunk into your heart and your head yet, Yahweh's the one who rescued you. He's the one who brought you out to this place. And in the morning, you're going to see his glory. He has heard your grumbling, just as he heard your cries from Egypt, as if Moses is trying to remind the people of Israel, God has not changed. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Why would you think that how he acted towards you in the past will be different now? And I think he also wants to make sure they understand the gravity of the situation and the immensity of God's grace towards them. Because he tells them very plainly you do not grumble and complain against me. The object of your grumbling, the object of your complaining is God himself. What you're actually communicating when you grumble about not having something to eat is, Yahweh, we don't like what you're doing. We don't like where you've led us. We don't like our present circumstances. David Paulson is a professor and counselor up in the Philadelphia area. He defines grumbling this way. He said, grumbling is dissatisfaction with what is. It's dissatisfaction with what is. See, Moses wants them to think about this. Yahweh has done so much for you already, yet you grumble and complain of your present circumstances. Do you not think or believe that the same God who brought you out of slavery will also care for you now? We continue reading verses 13 through 15. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing. Fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given to you. See, God is faithful to do what he said he was going to do. He provides food for his people. There's meat for them to eat in the evening. And in the morning, there's this mysterious flake-like edible substance for them. Something that they can eat and bake with that they later call manna. And Moses gives some specific commands though regarding this bread from heaven. Verse 16, he says, this is what Yahweh has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer, which is about two quarts or two liters, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And in verse 19, Moses says to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. See, this is the test that Yahweh said he was going to bring back in verse four. Will they listen to me? Will they trust me or not? Now, this is not a test in regard to earning favor with God. This is a test of learning, of probing their hearts. God already knows their hearts, but through this, God will expose their hearts. Verse 20, but they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. See, they don't trust God. God says, I'm making you be daily dependent on me. Only gather what you need for the day. Don't keep any of it over for tomorrow because I will provide for you again tomorrow. But they don't trust God. They save a little bit of it overnight. They try to take things into their own hands to secure their own provision instead of relying on the Lord. But God continues to press them in their hearts. Verses 22 through 26. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. Five days out of the week, if they gather extra and keep it, it rots. But on the sixth day, heading into the seventh, God says, look, I want you to gather a little bit more. Because on the seventh day, I don't want you to do any work. I want you to rest. Why rest? It's another opportunity for them to trust God. For them to realize that they are not in control, but God is in control, that God is Lord, that he will provide, that they are dependent on him. So what do the people of God do as he calls them to rest? Verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Man, they still don't trust God. God says, I'm giving you extra today so you don't have to do anything tomorrow. Yet they wake up in the morning and go out still to get more food. They want to be in control. They feel this need to still gather. Maybe it's this good desire that is for for providing for their family that has become this kind of all-encapsulating thing for them. But see, they do so in disobedience to God. They believe in their own self-sufficiency. Man, do we do the same thing sometimes? Struggling to rest because at a core level, we feel the need to be in charge. We feel the need to be in control. We feel the need to be self-sufficient. God is not pleased with what they do, but God remains gracious to them. Verses 28 and 30. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, God gives them these commands and laws for their good. He says, see, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place in the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. God saying, I'm giving these commands for your good, for your joy. Trust me. Follow me. This concludes our second scene. And so far, we've seen twice now the people of Israel grumbling and complaining. And twice now, God has been gracious to them. We get to the third and final scene. And the pattern continues. Chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord encamped at Riphonim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Check this out. I mean, they have crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They've had bitter water made drinkable. They've had daily bread provided for them by God. And now they're complaining again. When a great white shark goes to attack its prey, its eyes roll in the back of its head. And it goes in quick and fast for the kill. That's what's going on here. The people of Israel's eyes have rolled in the back of their heads. And all they can think about is getting what they want in a given moment. They can't see anything else. They can't think about anything else. And they indict Moses once again. They basically say, Moses, you've brought us out here to murder us, to kill us. So Moses cries out to God in desperation. He says, look, what are we going to do? These people, what should we do with them? They're almost ready to stone me. But once again, God responds in grace to their grumbling. Verses 5 and 6, and the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. See, the people wanted to stone Moses for what they perceived as basically being premeditated murder, but God steps in. He stands on the rock and essentially takes the beating for them instead. He is merciful first and foremost because he doesn't punish them for their faithlessness. But he's also gracious to them because he provides water for them when they don't deserve it. The end of verse 7 depicts the seriousness of what the people are thinking and doing. It says in verse 7, he called the name of the place Massah, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, is Yahweh among us or not? Is Yahweh among us or not? Really? After all that God has done for them. After all they've seen him do through the plagues in Egypt, through the parting of the Red Sea, redeeming them and restoring them to himself, providing drinkable water, providing food to eat, now providing this water out of the rock, and they're still questioning whether God is going with them or not. How quickly they forget God's faithful presence and gracious provision. But what do we learn about the heart of man in all of this? When we kind of assess what's going on with their hearts, these 2 million people have seen God do amazing things on their behalf. They've sung a song of praise to their rescuing God, but now they respond to further trials in life with grumbling and complaining. See, maybe they expected to go from grace to glory. They thought, well, God has redeemed us. We should just go right into the promised land and have everything we could possibly have. But instead, what happens to them is they encounter tribulation and trial. They've just an experienced an exhilarating act of redemption. But what lies ahead is a long journey of sanctification. See, sanctification is the process where God molds us and shapes us to be who he wants us to be, to refine us so we might live to the glory of his name. And this journey of sanctification for God's people will involve suffering, trials, testing, and faith. See, God's commands were not given to save them. He'd already done that. But they're given again for their good, for the joy of his children to say, this is the good way to live. If you want to know the good life, live under my lordship and follow me. But see, they don't know how the Lord is going to work in their present circumstances. They can't see what he might be doing as he leads them. And that bothers them. It presses on the core idol of all of our lives, the desire to be in control over all circumstances. See, they, they, they think that they're self-sufficient people. They have all their water. They have all their food. But when it runs out and they can't discover it on their own, they freak out because they're not in control. But instead of going to God, they jump to other conclusions, blaming Moses, putting their hope in their former life and despairing over their present circumstances. But they never go to God. See, God knows their hearts, but here God has exposed them. See, the problem is not the desire for food. It's not the desire for the basic necessities of life. The problem is they wanted food and they wanted it now and they disbelieved God would provide for them. They wanted God's provision, but they wanted it on their own terms and their own timeline. And if we dig a little deeper into their hearts, I think we see something that's more striking. They want God's provision on their terms, but they don't want God. They want God to provide for them. They want God to give them everything that they've ever wanted or desired, but they don't actually want him. See, Israel is self-focused. They're self-centered. They demand God act for them, disconnected from him being Lord over them. And what's happened is that a healthy and good longing for things like food and water have become an inordinate and all-consuming desire. Their God is their stomach, as Paul says in Philippians 3. But again, it isn't wrong to seek out provision. God calls his people to pray and ask for him to provide for them. That's not what's wrong here. The problem is they didn't actually do that. They just complain about their circumstances. They never go to God to ask him to provide what they need. Instead, they complain about God and what he hasn't done for them yet. See, what God is teaching them through all of this, what he's teaching us through all of this, is that their whole lives, every aspect of their life, is completely dependent on him. He's the one that sustains them. This is about a relationship that's fostered through daily dependence. Every evening, they have to go to bed believing that God will provide for them the next day. See, you and I, I don't think we really get that when we live here in this area, for most of us. I don't know everybody in this room, but for most of us, we have food for the week. We don't think about when we go to bed tonight, is there going to be food for us to eat tomorrow? But that's what God's doing with them is saying, I'm not going to let you stock up extra. I want you to be dependent on me. And when he does that, what he's doing is this providing this daily provision of bread also is a daily invitation to dine with him. A daily invitation to come as they're hungry, to come to him, to rest in him, to trust him, to gather only what's needed for the day and to rest when he says to rest See, these commands at their core are relational. He is their God. They are his people. Those whom he's loved, those who he's redeemed, those who he gives grace to over and over and over again. But see, we can look at the people of Israel here in the wilderness kind of at a 30,000-foot view. We can armchair quarterback it. We can kind of be Exodus pundits who give our, our analysis of what's going on here, commentary and critique that's disconnected, though, from our own reality. But the reality is, is that you and I act just like Israel. Remember our definition of grumbling and complaining? It's dissatisfaction with what is. Paul Tripp, who's another pastor and counselor, says this. He says, grumbling is the background drone of a discontented heart. It's the background drone of a discontented heart. There it is, that that low and often subtle noise of discontentment with our present circumstances. Maybe it's not always boisterous, maybe it's not always loud, but it's just that low, subtle noise that goes on in the background of our hearts, of our discontentment, because of where God has us. But see, that's it. Just like Israel, when we grumble, we, when we complain, we're not ultimately grumbling or complaining against someone else or the present circumstances. We are grumbling and complaining about God. As we said last week, we can equate the exodus with our own. If you are in Christ this morning, God has set you free from the slavery of sin and death. But now you and I continue on our journey as God grows us and sanctifies us to conform us to the image of his son. See, Israel got through one obstacle only to be confronted by another one. Isn't that so much what the Christian life is like? That we get through one difficulty, one trial, one hardship, and then all of a sudden we find ourselves in another one but the problem is that sometimes that we have believed or been even taught a false gospel that says to us that following Jesus will make life easier for you but that's not what Jesus says to us in Matthew chapter 7 he says the reality of following me is going on a narrow and hard road that leads to life Life will be challenging. Life will be difficult for us as we navigate through this life. But we know and trust and believe that God is using that to conform us to the image of his son. See, we need to know where we are in the Christian life. We need to know where we are, that God has saved us, that he is with us, that he is leading us and guiding us and providing for us and molding us and shaping us to be who he wants us to be to the praise of his glory and for our own good. Then and only then when we realize where we are in the Christian life, that God has not abandoned us, that he's not forsaken us, that he's continuing to walk with us, can we live out James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Just like Israel, the testing of our faith on the other side of the sea... As God has provided the way of salvation for us, and now we find ourselves on the other side of the sea, is realizing that in this life, until Christ returns, we are walking in a wilderness, sojourners, exiles in a foreign land. Then our faith is being tested. But it's not in order for us to prove anything to God. It's not in order for us to earn anything from Him. It's not some sick, cosmic, Trinitarian game of amusement. It is teaching us obedience. It's teaching us to trust the one who alone is worthy of worship and devotion, who is Lord over all things. My wife and I are in the process of adopting a little boy from Ethiopia. And we have a long ways to go before that's going to be finalized and be finally done. But when we finally bring our son home, he will not have to earn his way into our family. We won't won't stick him on the side and say, well, you can be our son if you do these things that's not what we're going to say. He will be our son. That will be a fact done. That's it. It's an unchanging reality for him. However, he will have to learn obedience, just like our other two boys have to learn obedience. This means discipline. This means trust. This means respect. This means following. This means a whole lot of grace. The same thing is true for you and for me. We don't earn our way to be sons and daughters of God. God has made a way for us to do that. But God now is teaching us obedience, which means that every aspect of your life right now, just like with Israel, is an opportunity for you to trust God. It's an opportunity for you to trust him with the big things. It's an opportunity for you to trust him with the daily details of your life to learn obedience, that he is Lord, that he's in control and you're not but you and I live in a microwave culture. We live in a microwave culture. We demand things and we demand them now. We want them to happen immediately and we want them on our terms and our timeline. We have the attitude or the thought sometimes of, I need a new job now. I need more money now. I want a husband now. I want a wife now now i want kids now i want sex now i need love and affirmation now and when we don't get those things in the way that we want them in the timeline that we think is best we grumble we complain maybe sometimes it's in the guise of a prayer request at community group but it's the little things too not just the big things I asked my wife this week, I said, hey, what are the things that I grumble and complain about the most? That's a dangerous question to ask, right? <laughs> hey, what do I grumble and complain about the most? And it wasn't some big thing. It was two kind of little things. Very quickly, she knew the answer. She said, the things you grumble and complain about the most are bad drivers and being tired. I thought about it. I was like, yeah, that's probably right. That's probably what I spend most of my time grumbling and complaining about. People bad drive badly. Or because I'm tired. But see, that's what that still communicates is that I don't like my present circumstances. I don't like the season of life I'm in that makes me tired. I, I don't like the fact that someone's getting in my way because I've got places to go and things to do. I want to be in charge. See, our grumbling and complaining can be about anything. And I think our grumbling and complaining often comes from a perception of, or belief that we are entitled to something. But listen, the only thing that you and I are entitled to is death for our rebellion against God. Everything else that God gives us is his grace. We cannot live a life that's based off quid pro quo. Whether it's with other people or towards God. See, I think sometimes we believe that God is obligated to our demands as if we've made a contract with him. To say, God, if I do these things, then you'll be obligated to do these things. But God didn't make a contract with you. He made a covenant with you. He said, I'll be your God and you will be my people. He justified you. He's in the process of sanctifying you and He will bring you home to glory. Look, God cares about your physical needs right now. He does. He cares about the details of your life right now. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us the way that we should pray is we should ask God for our daily bread. Our daily bread, does that sound familiar? Jesus is teaching us the same lesson that he's trying to teach the people of Israel in the wilderness. Come to me. Ask me for these things. Be dependent on me for these things. See, it isn't that we cannot come to God when we are struggling in life. The problem is is that we often don't go to him at all. The problem is that when we do go to him, we go to him with a complaining and rebellious spirit. But see, I think the problem goes much deeper than that in our hearts. Just like with the people of Israel in the wilderness the problem is that just like Israel, healthy and good longings can become inordinate and all-consuming desires. It isn't just what we need, but what we think that we need. We say, "If I'll be happier if I have this thing. If I only had this or that, then everything would be okay. I just need a little bit more. If God would just provide this for me, a new job, a better husband or wife, If I just had this kind of thing, then everything would be okay. Why is God holding out on me? As one pastor challenges us, he asks this question, how often do we accept the needs our world tells us to have? See, the world is always telling you what you need. You need a bigger house. You need a nicer car. You need to wear these kinds of clothes. You need to have these kinds of things how often do we just accept that without ever thinking about the fact that do we actually need that the pastor goes on to say there are natural desires but there are no neutral ones everything you desire is an opportunity to worship god or to feed the god of your stomach it's an opportunity for you to be dependent on him or to make everything about you And at the end of the day, this is not about finding healthy ways to meet unmet needs. It's about a transformation of your heart. You need God to do a work in your heart. A complaining spirit always, always indicates a problem in our relationship with God. We come to God asking for the life we've always wanted. We come asking for our best life now, but we don't often ask for more of him. We come to God with our requests, but he's not on the list. We can have a, what have you done for me lately kind of attitude, forgetting what God has done for you eternally. Do you forget who you are? Do you forget what God has done for you? Do you forget whose you are? Who you belong to? See, Israel cannot see beyond themselves, but that's exactly what Christ calls us to. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says these words to you. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Then he jumps down and says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. What Jesus is telling you to do is look beyond yourself. Look beyond yourself and look to God, to living a life that's pleasing to him, to living a life that's focused on him, worshiping him, walking in his ways under his lordship. Seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness means, means looking to Jesus to satisfy you. See, our greatest need now and forever is to be reconciled to God redeemed from death, given new life. In the gospel of John, Jesus tells us who he is and he tells us what that means for you and for me. In John chapter seven, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul connects this right back to the rock that they hit with the staff and water came out. And he said, the rock is Christ. Come to him to be satisfied with living water. In John chapter six, Jesus brings all of this full circle back to the people of God in the wilderness. He's just fed the 5,000 people sitting on the hillside by multiplying five loaves of bread and two fish so that all the people had enough food to eat. In John chapter six, this is a longer bunch of texts, but I think it's important for us to see this exchange between these people as they're coming to Jesus for something. Then they said to him, this crowd of people said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Now he's just fed 5,000 plus people. But they say, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. But Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to them, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And Jesus responds in this way, says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And upon hearing these words, it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. To the people of Israel in the wilderness, the people at the feeding of the 5,000 wanted God to provide for them, But they don't want him. See, Jesus says to them, and he says to you and to me, Come to me. Rest in me. Be satisfied in me. I'm the water that satisfies, I am the bread that nourishes, I am the one who gives life now and forever, and I will do this through the giving of my body and the shedding of my blood. See, Jesus went to the cross. And died on the cross and bearing the wrath of God for your sin and my sin and our rebellion. He died for our whining and our complaining and our grumbling. And he did it to reconcile us to God, to make God our father. And then he rose again on the third day to give us new life, to make us a new creation that we could be with him for all eternity. Israel was self-focused and self-centered. They demanded God act for them. And we can be the same, thinking and believing that we need something right now. But the way of the cross is different than that. See, there are false gospels and anti-gospels being bombarded on you every single day. Every single day, somebody's telling you something that you need to be comfortable. Telling you something that you need to be satisfied. They're teaching you a false gospel. Telling you this is where hope is found. This is where life is found. If you just look a little bit better, if you use these products, it'll make you feel younger. If you drink these things, if you eat these things, if you live in these kinds of places, if you drive these kinds of cars, if you drink these kinds of drinks, then everything will be better for you. That's a false gospel. But see, if you don't know and believe the true gospel, if you don't trust in the bread of heaven, if you don't trust in the rock of salvation, then you will not be able to sift through those things. You'll be taken captive by them. We need to remember the words of Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And here's the beauty of God's loving grace. Here's the beauty of his unwavering commitment to transforming your jacked up and jaded heart. As one pastor says it, the Lord by his grace by his grace, sometimes allows us to experience the fruit of our own self-centeredness in order to impress on us how fleeting such a focus really is. These times of testing are a gift from God. When God says, this is what you want, then I'll let you reap the fruit of what you want. He goes on to say, God often uses what we want to teach us how to want him more. Sojourn in the midst of our real needs, in the the midst of our good desires, we must go to God, not just for him to meet a need, but to be satisfied in him. We need to go to God to ask him to transform our hearts, to not turn other things into gods in our life, to give worship to other things that we would realize what we think we need is not really what we need at all, allowing good things to become ultimate things. See, we as God's people We as God's people, redeemed by the shed blood of Christ, should not be marked by grumbling. We should not be marked by having a complaining spirit. What we should be marked as, what the world should look at us and see, are a people who have a joyful heart. Who are grateful. No matter what circumstance we're in. We should be marked by thanksgiving and contentedness in all things. Because we know that in Christ, he has given us all things. And by God's grace and help, we can live out Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes this. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In everything, bring those things to God. Come to him. He wants you to do that. And he goes on to say in the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then he finishes this section. He says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. See, Paul says that He can be content no matter what the situation or circumstance happens to be because Christ is His strength at all times. He's satisfied in the bread of heaven, He's satisfied in the rock of salvation. See, when you and I understand what we've been given, when we understand who we are, that we have union with Christ, when we understand whose we are, we too can be content in all things, knowing that our God is good, knowing that our God is faithful, knowing that our God cares deeply for us, even down to the details of our life, even when, even when we're in the middle of the desert and God leads us to bitter water. We can still say, praise the name of the Lord. I trust you, God. I know that you are for me. See, every single time that you get angry or anxious at a circumstance that you're in, it should bring you to your knees as you remember your deep and desperate need for Jesus. When that anxiousness rises up in your heart, when that complaining or grumbling spirit rises up in your heart, it should drive you to your knees because it reminds you how much you need God's grace. And So as we close, let me ask you this question very simple question who or what do you grumble or complain about who or what do you grumble or complain about maybe it's not something you've ever verbalized with your mouth it's just something that you know is in the depth of your heart where do you need to repent and ask for forgiveness maybe it's just before the lord but maybe you need to go to someone else your kids your spouse a boss a coworker a neighbor, a family member, maybe it's your roommate, maybe it's a friend. You need to go to them and confess that you've had a complaining and grumbling spirit towards them. Ask them to forgive you, to extend grace. And I want you to think about that this week. See, oftentimes we're blinded to our own grumbling. If you're sitting there right now saying, well, I I don't think I really grumble or complain too much. Let me challenge you to ask the spirit to reveal that to you and then go ask someone else around you. Man, be vulnerable, be humble to go ask your wife or your husband or a close friend. and Just say, hey, what what are the things that I grumble or complain about and humbly receive that? There are consequences to our life when we don't deal with grumbling and complaining at the cross of Christ. When we don't bring our grumbling and complaining and repent before the Lord and bring it to the cross of Christ, what happens is bitterness develops in our heart. And a root of bitterness takes Hold of us and when we don't deal with bitterness at the cross of christ that little root of bitterness turns into a huge tree of bitterness and it will destroy your heart it will destroy your life so this morning repent of your grumbling and complaining before the lord even in the little things repent of any bitterness that started to take root in your life ask god to transform your heart from grumbling to gratefulness no matter what your circumstances in, that people would look at you and say, man, that's a joyful person because we know who we are in Christ. Go back to the cross. Remember what God has done for you and what that means for you now. And know that God's grace is sufficient for you. It's sufficient for you. And his grace is on display when he provides for whiners like you and like me. See, the beauty of all this is that when we actually rise above our self-focus, When we rise above that, we can actually begin to have an impact on the world around us. Alleviating real needs, physically and spiritually. When we look beyond ourselves and seek his kingdom first and his righteousness, we can actually go out and make an impact on this world. All the people of Israel could see is just what they needed in the moment. And they missed the bigger picture of what God was doing. May our greatest longing not be marked by demands for manna, but may they be marked by wanting to know God more, to sit at his feet in awe and worship, to live lives for his glory, for he has done great things for you. God is our provider and he is our healer. He gives us bread and he gives us water, but more than that, he gives us his grace. Then don't love and worship the giver because of what he gives to you. Worship and love him because he gives you himself now and forever. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, John, the apostle writes this, The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. That's an invitation for you this morning, whether it's for the first time or the hundredth time. If you're in Christ this morning, then I want to invite you to come to the table this morning to eat and drink what the Lord has provided for you. The bread of heaven has come and he has given his body. He has shed his blood for you. And so this morning, eat and drink today knowing that your greatest need has been met through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And God is faithful to you today. But if you're not a follower of Christ, the invitation's a little bit different. I don't want to invite you to come forward. I'd ask you actually not to come forward to take the bread and the cup. What I want to invite you to do today is to take Christ if you don't actually know Christ, if you've never confessed your sin to the Lord, repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, believing that he died on the cross for your sin and that God raised him again from the dead and that now he is Lord over you. If you've never repented and believed the gospel, don't come forward and take the bread. Take Christ today. Just hang out in your seat. Pray that God would save you today so that you could experience his grace, be redeemed and reconciled to him and know his goodness. And you can be welcomed into this family as a brother and a sister. If you have questions about what that means, please come talk to me afterwards or any of our other leaders. We'd love to journey with you in that. And those of you that will come forward, you can come forward when you're ready to receive it. And take a small piece of bread and a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the book of exodus lord it can be easy for us i know it can be easy for me to read the old testament sometimes and just read these as fun stories interesting stories but lord you use every word of your word to teach us to lead us into worshiping you to knowing who you are to seeing your story of redemption and grace and this is another one of those moments lord we see the people of Israel. We see the reality of their grumbling and complaining heart. And they're missing you in it. But Lord, help us not to sit back and just assess them. I pray that that would be motivation and the leading of your spirit to assess our own hearts. Lord, we don't want to be a grumbling people. We don't want to be a complaining people. We want to be a joyful people, a grateful people who recognize the depth of your grace, the depth of your love for us, that you've poured out mercy and grace on us through Christ. Help us to remember that you gave your only son. Why should we think that in him and through him you will not give us all things? Lord, we don't want to just want the things of this world. We want to want more of you. So help us to search our hearts out. Help us to be open to and attentive to the spirit and to our brothers and sisters speaking truth into our life. Lord, we give those things to you. We confess that to you this morning. As we come forward now, I pray that we'd rest in your sufficient grace for us. That the bread of heaven has come. That the rock has been split. And now we can eat and drink to the glory of you, God. Because of the grace you've given us in Christ. We love you. We thank you that you love us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.